We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello, my name's Rosie. And I'm Lorraine. And this is What If, the show that examines life's what-if moments. I guess it's all about those times you find yourself at a crossroads and you have to decide what path you're going to take. Yeah, and for every path you choose, there's one or two that you might have decided to leave behind. And how does this change or affect your life? Yeah, because I guess if I had gone to university to do Russian and English, as I was supposed to do, and not going into local newspapers, it'd be very different. Well, you wouldn't have met Dad. And you wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be here. You wouldn't be here, which would be unthinkable. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in this podcast, we'll be walking that unbeaten path with an incredible lineup of celebrity guests, asking them that all-important question, what if? On this week's show, we are joined by TV presenter and fashion guru Gok Wan. He started his career as a makeup artist and has gone on to present shows like How to Look Good Naked and the cookery programme Gok's Chinese Takeaway. Well, we started off by asking him about his childhood. It was, you know, I had the most amazing childhood. I come from a very loving, very warm, very normal, very working class family, but with some differences. So being mixed race was one, which was a bit tricky in the 70s. And also they owned their own business. So we had a family business growing up. And so our family became tighter and closer as a result of that, because we weren't only family members, we were also colleagues and, you know, workers and stuff. And so it was the most dynamic, fun, vibrant, colourful, flavoursome, tasty childhood. But that was fine within our house and our business, but the rest of the world was a bit of an imposition. The rest of the world was quite tricky because of growing up gay and growing up very overweight and growing up mixed race. It was, things were tricky at school, but things at home were amazing. But all in all, in hindsight, when we look back, I, I, you know, had one of the most blessed, most incredible childhoods, just because of the amount of love from all of my family, which continues to grow daily, slightly suffocating at times, Mm. as all families are, but they're amazing and they're still my closest friends, which is great. And you've spoken a little bit about being bullied in the past and being at Mm. school. We were just wondering, what if you had been the popular kid? Do you think your life would have changed the way that you are just now? Well, really interestingly, Rosie, I kind of made myself the popular kid as a way of fighting off the bullies. And so when I first went to secondary school, I was quite shy and very nervous. And I'm not particularly academic. My sister's really clever. My sister's a lawyer and she's like super, super brainy. My brother is dashing and handsome and courageous and alpha male. And I kind of sat in between the two of them, Mm. a little bit like a hybrid version of my brother and sister so when I got to secondary school at the you know tender age of 11 when you look back now you go my god 11 that's so young 
But actually, when you are 11, you are expected to have very adult views and very adult opinions. And it, you're expected to be quite strong, aren't you, at 11? Um, so strong that you would go into a whole new community of people that you don't know, and you have to hold your own with them. And I didn't have that courage, really. I didn't have that strength or confidence. And so as a result of that, I was a bit of a sitting target for the bullies. And they started quite early on. And they continued and continued until I did my first ever makeover on myself and I you know I've made a career out of makeovers now Hmm. but I gave myself a a huge makeover over the summer holidays and my mum took me to Next and she bought me a pair of chinos and an Aran jumper and I had my hair cut into a very very 80s kiss curl like Lisa Stansfield and I remember wearing brown brogues and it was a real Hollywood moment of walking back into school on the first day of term in September going actually, you know what, you can't come near me, you can't touch me, because all of a sudden I've got a suit of armour on now. And and I made myself the popular kid, I made myself noticeable, I gave myself a reason to be there. And I thought, I'm not going to do this any longer. But of course, I was still the very shy, very troubled, very angry teenager inside my body. And it manifested itself like that. So I became not really the aggressor, but I became the loud, naughty, gregarious character. And that happened literally over a matter of months. It was a real transformation, probably like a Cinderella moment, really. The modern day Cinderella. Can I call myself that? Is that massively narcissistic? (laughs) No, I think it's absolutely fantastic. I really did. And you talked about the fact you have been really open about the fact that you did struggle with with mental health and you struggled Mm. with your weight. And I think so many of us, including myself, can really identify with that because it's hard. It's really tough. And you you sort of wonder sometimes what if you had been that uber thin, you know, like the the way that you think you should be. Do you yeah. not find, though, when you look back at pictures of yourself that you were all right? Yeah. You know, you yeah. really were. Yeah. I'm like, when I was 16, I thought I was a, a barrage balloon and I was actually okay. <laughs> and I look back and, think, and I want to go back and say, you were all right. Yeah, <laughs> you yeah. Were all right. But, but you But it's just human behaviour. I mean, you're completely right. It's just human behaviour, though, isn't it? Because we will look at our lives right now and we're constantly looking for change and we're constantly looking for growth and development because that's how we're wired and programmed. We're taught that from a very young age. From a very young age, you know, you've got to be clever and you've got to be bright. And, you know, there's, you know, when I was at school, I remember being at school and I remember a teacher turning off another kid for using their knife and fork left-handed. And it wasn't right. And so do you see what it means? So we're programmed to behave a certain way. We're also programmed to look a certain way. And we're also programmed to believe a certain way. And then when that doesn't quite pan out, we're constantly looking for all those developments. But weirdly, you know, the whole what if question, I guess I, I think I have been both of those people. Because I, when I went off to university, I mean, skipping forward a lot and going through a huge, a huge amount of change. When I was first diagnosed with anorexia at the age of 21, I'd gone from 21 stone down to a very small 10, 11 stone in a matter of months. I just cut out eating. Eating wasn't a part of my life any longer. And so I became that person, the person you've just spoken about, because I thought that that person would be happy Mm. and I thought that that person would be accepted and I thought that person would be a better friend, a better son, a better lover, a better, you know, a better everything. And when I met that person for the first time and I remember seeing my reflection in the mirror and I didn't recognise that person because it was was such a shock, I suddenly realised it was such an epiphany moment that 
actually, you know, a lot of people have spoken about this before and they've said it's what the, you know, it's the inside that counts. And I've never quite believed that. But now I had evidence of that. I'd done the line of duty moment. I had found out all of this evidence and I now had probably one of the biggest sources of happiness right before me through something very, very traumatic, which sounds really traumatic, but it was a big moment. All of a sudden it was like, if you're not happy as that person, but you've then changed yourself and you're not happy as that person, there's something's going wrong here. Mm. Something's not quite adding up. So you, what you need to do is you need to internalise that and find out what is going on there, which is then going back to your previous thing, which is why I've spoken so publicly about this. Because I have no fear of admitting that I've had dark times. I've, had no, I've got no fear of it at all because they're all the most amazing parts of me. And I realise that now. My darkness and my fear and my sadness and my loneliness and my wanting to fit in and wanting to be loved makes me a really good person. Hmm. If yeah. that makes any sense. Yeah. No, it does. <laughs> it's quite it, dark. It definitely. Quite <laughs> no, it's true because, I mean, it got it got pretty bad. You know, it did. I mean, yeah. when you get as bad to think that the world is going to be better without you in it, even yeah. though even though now you look back and think, what on earth was I thinking? You know, if it yeah. does get that bad. But, I mean, for goodness sake, if you can go right to that precipice and then somehow bring yourself back from that, that's remarkable. Yeah. It's incredible. Oh, great. Incredible. Incre- incredible. Incredible. And, do you know, I think we're all kind of duty-bound to share those stories now. And, you know, I've got the most incredible life. I love my job. I love my friends. I've got the most incredible family. I actually quite like me, believe it or not. I'm, I'm a good person. I do good stuff. You know, this is from all of that darkness. It is a fairy tale story. And I'm still living that fairy tale. Mm. But you're absolutely right. If you can imagine yourself, I remember the darkest moment for me, and I've only really spoken about this briefly in my autobiography back in 2009, which was one of the most painful things to write. And it was really badly written, so don't read it. Um, absolutely <laughs> awful. Um, but <laughs> but I, I, um, I remember sitting, eat, and I remember, <laughs> I love food so much, and I was really in the dark place with my eating disorder, and I'd lost a load of weight, and it was just before I was about to leave university early, because I couldn't physically or emotionally cope with being in an institution. And I remember thinking, okay, the only way that I could really enjoy this pizza that I really wanted. All I wanted was pizza. And I hadn't eaten for months properly, months. I'd lived, but just, just to give you a little bit of a, a landscape to this, I'd, I'd started working out that I could live, exist on just two teaspoons of honey a day. Bonkers. But I'd worked out in my head, that was all the carbohydrate I needed. And I was studying acting, and so it's a very physical course to mm. be on, you know, kind of running around a drama studio and whatever. And so I'd worked all this out, but I just craved this pizza. And I remember thinking, the next time that I could really enjoy a piece of pizza and not feel guilty about eating it because it would add weight, and if it added weight, I'd go back to being that person that I'd never wanted to be again, then um, it would be the last thing that I ate. And I remember that was the briefest moment of kind of... I guess the darkest place I went to, and I was really lucky because I registered those thoughts and I suddenly thought, oh, actually, that's scary. This is bad now. You've got to do something about this. And so moved into a slightly different direction. But what I'm getting at is that had I not had those thoughts or had I not experienced all of that stuff, then there's no way that I would be sitting here right now doing your podcast, (laughs) having a chat with you about it. But it's true though, isn't it? Isn't that incredible how things work out out of all that darkness? comes so much light and so much good stuff. I'm very lucky though. Yeah. 
And you mentioned a little bit about studying drama. What made you want to do that? And what if you hadn't done drama? Was there anything else that you wanted to, to study? Rosie, if I'd not studied drama, then I'd be still delivering takeaways for my uncle right now in Leicester. <laughs> that is the honest truth. There was no other option. As I said, I'm not clever and I was, you know, painfully unacademic. And the only thing I've ever, ever really been good at is this, is talking. You know, I love talking. I love people. And, and so it seemed like the, the right thing to do to go into acting. However, saying that, when I remember my earliest ever career aspiration is that I wanted to be an archaeologist. Oh, wow. Why I did know, you? What was is, that? What insane. made you want to be? <laughs> <laughs> which is so insane. I, okay, it's not insane because archaeologists are incredible. And my God, I wish I was intelligent enough. I tell you what had happened. We'd moved from our council house and mum and dad had just bought a swanky new house with a restaurant underneath it called the Panda in Leicester. And this was, and it was basically a Victorian end terrace house. Downstairs was the restaurant. And then upstairs, it was just where we lived. But because all of our money and energy had been put into, you know, doing this gorgeous restaurant, and upstairs was, was a complete pigsty. I mean, it was a complete pigsty. And I remember someone had removed a sheet of wood from the fireplace and it had exposed a fireplace. Now, I was probably, I don't know, nine or ten years old. And I remember finding a Victorian tile that would lay in the fire. Um, is it called the hearth? The heat yeah, the hearth, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in the hearth. And I remember finding it thinking, oh my God, this is the most exciting thing mm. in the entire world. And then I remember asking my sister, who is very bright, so, so if I went around and found stuff that was really old, and what would I be? And she said, you'll be an archaeologist. And I was like, I'm going to be an archaeologist. That's what I want to be. <laughs> and so that, that was my first... <laughs> I don't think I've ever told that story. Um, I think, um, so yeah, I wanted to be an archaeologist. But, but acting, acting for me was... Uh, I found it incredible because I could just be anyone I wanted to be. I didn't have to be myself. And I was never, ever going to be an actor. I was rubbish at it. I was so bad when I look back now. But I pushed myself into doing it because I just wanted any reason not to be Gok Wan. I could be any character that a, a teacher or book or a script gave me. I just didn't have to be Gok Wan. And I'm really lucky that I discovered that early because the what if, if I'd ended up being an actor... I have no idea at all who I would be right now. I have no idea, because I am just not good enough and not brave enough. You know, and actors are incredible, incredible humans. They're selfless with their emotions. I'm quite selfish with my emotions, and I dread to think where I would be now. It is remarkable, isn't it, when you think about that? I guess, what was the moment for you that was kind of the big break? You know that light bulb moment when you thought, actually, this is what I want to do, and it's all going to work out. Oh, do you know what, Lorraine? Are the, I've are the big thousand, break? Thousands of interviews and never been asked that question. And so <laughs> I, I don't oh, believe that. <laughs> I think I've, I think I've had several. Yeah. <laughs> I think I've had several of those moments. If I'm really honest, there was one moment I'd gone home to Leicester to recover from the anorexia. And I wasn't fully recovered. It takes, you know, it's with you for, for the rest of your life. But I suddenly felt strong enough to move back to London, still with the aspirations of being an actor. So, and then I had got a job working in a recruitment agency and I hated it. I, I didn't get on with it at all. It wasn't for me whatsoever. And I left there and I thought, well, what am I going to do? What, what am I going to do with myself? And I went and got a job in a restaurant. 
on Kensington High Street as a waiter. And it's because I knew it. I knew the catering industry inside out. I knew the people. I knew the culture. I knew how to do the job. And that was a light bulb moment for me, was leaving a city job with a suit and tie, which I hated, and then going back to catering that I absolutely loved because I suddenly thought you know what, this is, you are in full control. When things get really tough, you are able to change that for yourself and you do have a skill set. You can do something. And so that was a massive light bulb moment for me because it gave me my freedom. It gave me my independence. It made me feel confident. I met the most incredible group of people that I worked with at the restaurant and we had, a, you know, a, a, it was about a year. We had a wonderful time. But it was then that I then got into doing makeup and then getting into the fashion industry. And had I not done that move from the city to the restaurant, then I would never have got into fashion. And then I wouldn't be doing the job that I do now that I absolutely love and live for. I live for my job. I live for working. And so that was a big light bulb moment. And how do you get from being in a restaurant to being a makeup artist? And get, have you, did you always have a passion for a passion for fashion? I don't mean that to rhyme, but it just did. <laughs> we love a bit of alliteration. I know. Uh, how did I get into it? Okay, so I'm going to try and keep this brief because I do talk too much. I was uh, living in a flat in North London. I was working as a waiter, which sounds like a Duran Duran song, doesn't it? Uh, no, whoever, it, whoever sang that song. But I was working as a waiter and my flatmate at the time had got a deal to be a singer, a single, single deal. And she was getting her hair and makeup done that morning to go off and do her music video. I was getting ready to go to the restaurant to go to work. And I remember watching her get her hair and makeup done. And all day... When I was at work, I was just thinking about her getting her makeup done. And when I got home that night and I said to my flatmate, you know, how was it? How many times did you have to sing the song? You know, what did you have to wear? And how much did your makeup artist get paid? And she told me 50 quid. And I remember thinking, one day I'm going to earn 50 quid a day. And so then I basically lied. And I went to an agency, who a hair and makeup agency, and basically turned around and said... I was a makeup artist. I've been away working on different projects. I was here now. Would you take me on? And I was so convincing that they took me on. And I went and wow. did my first makeup job. So basically, I completely fibbed my way into the industry. And it's one of the greatest stories ever. <laughs> because that woman, who I, that woman that I went to go and see is still my agent now. And wow. she knows. And that was all those years ago. And actually one of my closest friends. And it was so funny because I told her years and years later. Um, so that was really the beginning of my journey. And I, and I guess something had happened again, the light bulb moment. I went back to the restaurant. I went back to catering. And some people may think it's just a waitering job. It wasn't for me. It was the most incredible move because I felt confident and strong and powerful because I knew what I was doing. And that gave me the courage to think, actually, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, you might do someone's lippy a bit wrong. <laughs> Um, which I did for many years. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Though. So Rosie, don't ever do that. Okay. <laughs> but, it, but the thing is, you mu you had a skill because otherwise you would have got found out. <laughs> Wouldn't you? They would have found oh. you out. So you, you were able to do it, you know, and, and whether it was you were learning on the job or whatever it was, you, you had that flair, you know, you had that sort of like, I well, don't know, it was, it was there with you. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it was a little bit, little bit of, it was a little bit of interest. It was a lot of luck. But I think, you know, when I look back now, you know, chair behaviour for a hair and makeup artist, you know, Lorraine, you get your hair and makeup done constantly for work and probably you do as well, Rosie, you know, at certain parts of your life. 
that that chair behaviour is really important. How that person who's doing your hair and makeup, who's, who's close up in your grill, they are so close to your face mm. and they, it's an intimate thing for somebody to be able to do. Now, if that person doesn't make you feel confident or comfortable or relaxed, then that person's never going to sit back in your chair again. It's mm. just not going to happen. And I guess it was around that time in my life that I worked out that probably my biggest skill wasn't working in a restaurant. Probably my biggest skill wasn't um, wasn't lying to get into a very, very difficult industry. But I think my biggest skill was the fact that I really like people. Mm-hmm. I find it quite easy to make people feel comfortable in my presence. And that is 95% of the job of a hair and makeup artist. If that person doesn't feel comfortable, you can have all the lipsticks and all the foundations mm-hmm. and all the eyeshadows in the world with all the skill set. But unless that person trusts you and you can be that close to that person's face, then you're never going to work as a makeup artist. And I had the 5%. <laughs> I, had to do, I, I, I was missing the 5%, which I taught myself very, very quickly. You're absolutely right, though, because that, that relationship is really, really important because makeup so artists important. often tend to be, they're like agony answer uncles. You know, yeah, it's yeah. a very special relationship, especially if you work with somebody all the time. And you're, you're right. I mean, mostly in life, it's about how do you get on with someone and how do you make, how do you gain trust and how you, yeah, yeah how you make them feel better. And of course, that's what you've been doing. You make people <laughs> feel better. You know, li- li- you do it all the time anyway. You know, I've seen people coming up to you in the street and they just smile and they want a photo with you and they just want to give you a cuddle. And that's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah, I'm, I, you know, I'm really, really lucky. I, I, you know, I genuinely like people. My mum taught me this, actually. My mum is the most incredible woman in the world, just so you know. I mean, you two are great. <laughs> my mum is genuinely, she's like an angel. She's fallen from a cloud somewhere. She's just the most remarkable woman. You know, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done. If you're a good person, she'll only ever see that. And my mum distilled that in me, my brother and my sister, actually. All of us get that from her. We get the naughtiness from dad, but we get this kind of loving nature from my mum. And I'm so lucky because that I've made a career out of that because I actually really like people. I want to see the good in everyone. And I hunt for it, even though sometimes it's quite tricky to find, as we all know. <laughs> but I hunt for it until I've got it. And once I've got it, that's all I need. I don't need any more than that. Whatever you get up to, it's, it's your. if you can live with your morals and your own personal ethics, it's fine. But I'll just take this bit of you and I'm okay with that. And so I'm really lucky, actually. And that's kind of just been my job for the last, you know, two decades now Mm. is, you know, a little bit of fashion, a little bit of shoe work, a little bit of makeup, Mm. you know, a little bit of cooking, a little bit of DJing, you know, all that stuff. It's just basically looking after people. And and, and when, when, because in recent years, I've been described as a polymath, as somebody that does lots of different things. Mm -hmm. So like I said, the fashion, the cooking, the DJing, whatever. And often journalists will say to me, well, what, how do you describe yourself then? Because you just seem to have all your fingers in every single pie. And I always say to them, you know, I, I just see myself as a waiter. That's all I am, is I'm a waiter. It's just that every single day, the tray that I hold has something different on it. Because my job is service. I, I look after people. I make sure that people have got what they want when they need it. And I make sure that they have a good time. And that's all that it is. That's all that my job is. And so again, I've kind of gone back to the restaurant at the ripe age of 46 now. I'm still working in that restaurant in some <laughs> bizarre way. Thank you. 
we brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Do you remember ages and ages ago we were at a book thing and uh, your book, one of your cookery books that you'd done was up for an award and your wee dad was there. Do you remember that? Maybe oh not, maybe not, maybe not. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It was just really, really funny because you said to me, look, um, I don't think I've won, but just do a picture of me with this trophy and my dad. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Because you'll be really, really happy. <laughs> and I think you did end up winning, actually. You did win. Oh, my God. I do remember. I absolutely do remember. Lorraine, you too. You took all my secrets. All the but you'd won anyway. It was fine. And he was so happy. Oh, and he was, he's so proud of you. Proud. Yeah, really, really proud of you. And you know the other thing about you as well, the trailblazing thing? And now, you know, I don't think people would realise it sort of 20 years ago how different it was to have somebody who was openly gay but also of Asian descent because, you know, mm. there's not as, as yeah. much of a representation as there should be. And, you know, yeah. you were you were there long before anyone else. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, and, it, and it's painful to think that we're still in that situation now. You know, I, I remember growing up and I had, there was very few people that I could look at that go, oh, actually, you're me, you're representing mm-hmm. me, I understand that now. You know, there was no families on the soaps and there was no Asian families, there was no Asian newsreaders or, you know, anyone presenting or, you know, it has a tiny, tiny molecule size got better, but we're still not there yet. You know, I remember, actually, it's, it's really interesting because I remember that when I first went onto television, this is 2006 now, and every single, every single person that came up to me in the street when they first met me was like, "Oh my God, you're that you're that Chinese guy from TV, you know, not your that that fashion stylist, or right. not that you're that mm, person that does clothes, or you know, it was always Chinese." And people weren't being rude; they weren't having a go. They were being really lovely. But I remember hearing it a lot, thinking, "This is really odd because my heritage has come first. It's the first thing that people recognise about me." And I think it's because there weren't, you know, it was unusual to see, as you say, unusual to see an Asian person. Not that unusual because we've had other people over the years, but it wasn't that common to see mm-hmm. an Asian person on television, which is why it became the first thing that people would say. That went away very quickly. I have, uh, I remember that, and it all of a sudden it was you know you're that stylist but at the very beginning it was Asian but yeah but you know and we still got a long way to go I mean that shop window I call it the mannequins do need to be representative of all of us Um, and we I don't feel that we're fully there yet at all in fact I know we're not and interesting too you know being gay in the family the very loving family you had Mm. was it just kind of there wasn't a big deal about you coming out but did they just everybody know and just kind of go on with it and that's baby and there he is no it was the toughest thing I told my family much later on my brother and sister knew I came out first to some friends when I was about 17 I remember coming out oh god I um I was desperate to come out to my friends at college and we were all studying drama 
And I've always been very flamboyant. I've always, I mean, I mean, look, I'm sat in an opera house at the moment, <laughs> you know, my, my front room. I've always been slightly bigger than life. I was, anyway, so, so I was there, this big character, and somebody was talking about this new boy band. And I remember somebody turning around going, oh, I really fancy Gary. And the other one turned around and went, oh, I fancy Howard. And the other one said, and said, oh, no, it's definitely Robbie. And I remember just going, I fancy Mark. I fancy Mark. I like Mark. That was kind of my coming out moment. It was, I just couldn't help myself. And so that happened at college. But then I didn't tell my mum and dad for years and years and years after that. And, you know, deep in my heart, I mean, they are genuinely the best people in the world. But they're so important to me that the idea that, you know, 0.00001% that they wouldn't be able to accept me or love me for being gay was a big risk. It was just too big for me. And so that's what held me off. And I knew deep down and they would be fine, but it was too much of a risk because I wouldn't lose my family for anything because they had seen me through, you know, all my darkness and all my light, and I owe them my world, and I would never take that risk. So when you were coming out to your parents, what was it like? How did you sort of phrase it, and what was their reaction? I'd been out on a Saturday night and got very drunk with friends, and I lived in London, and my brother and sister were coming to visit me on the Sunday for just for a day out. And I didn't want to tell them that I'd been out all night drinking. And I was basically hungover, is what had happened. And so they'd come to London, we'd had this day out, and my sister and my brother had been, you know, and they're probably right, actually. But they were like, you know, you're just not yourself. You know, you think you've got to tell mum and it's because you're gay. You've got to tell mum and dad you're gay. You've got to tell mum and dad you're gay. And it was a hangover mixed with all the fears of telling mum and dad that I was gay. Anyway, my sister went home and my sister told my mum. And it was the right thing to do, you know. It was absolutely mm. categorically the right thing to do. And we talked about it and whatever. And my mum called me up and she said to me, Hi, babe. I was like, hi, mum. And did you know home. that she had told... No, no, no okay. I didn't know. I didn't know it happened. And so I said, hi, mum. Hi, babe. She said, the kids are home. I went, oh, that's good. I know. And I was like, you know what? She said, I know you're gay. It was like, literally, my God, what is happening? This is just horrendous. And I said, and the first thing I said was, don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. Just don't tell dad. Whatever you do, don't tell dad. And anyway, so several months passed and then my mum did tell my dad and I was really worried about going home to Leicester to see them. So I thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it. Again, the flamboyant gawk comes out, you know, take the ball by the horns. Um, no pun intended. Um, and then I... So I went home with a guy that I was seeing. I, we went back. So I was like, if you're going to come out, oh, come wow. out with a guy. Oh, gosh. And so I drove back to Leicester and I got back to Leicester when I knew that my parents would have finished in the restaurant and be having their evening meal, which is always around half 11, quarter to 12 at night. And we walked into the flat above the restaurant and I had this boyfriend with me and it was just silence and just kind of this awful moment and our dinner tables aren't like that our dinner tables are like the opening of the greatest showman that's basically our <laughs> dinner table there's noise and circus and chaos and it wasn't it was deadly silent you could hear the chopsticks clicking it was that silent and it was just painful and my dad left the table early and I think this is the story because and I always I always have to say whenever I tell these old stories it was such a odd time this is how I remember it so this is how I remember it in my head my dad left the dinner table early 
which you don't do in the Chinese culture. My father's the head of the table. He sits at the table. He's the last one to leave. He's the last one to finish eating. But he left the table early, which was unusual in itself. And he went into the other room and he's just kind of, you know, whatever he was doing, there was this noise in there. We're all sitting there just looking at each other, rolling our eyes at each other. This was just awful. And then I went into the lounge and my dad had taken all the cushions off the sofa and he made a bed on the floor for me and my partner. Oh. So his way, his way oh. of turning around and saying, it's all right. It's okay. You know, we, we accept it, which is an amazing moment. Oh, that is, I mean, what if they hadn't? Can you imagine? <sighs> That oh, would be the you know worst what? I knew thing? you were going to say that because this is the nature of the podcast. Yeah. I don't think you can ask me this question. No. It's th- this is, the risk is too high yeah. to even consider, yeah. to even consider that. I couldn't, I couldn't be without my family. I and just they, couldn't. And I don't, can't even compute the idea that, that they, I wouldn't have them. No, he loves you. He might not like you. Only now and again. I mean, I think all parents feel a bit like that sometimes about their kids. They always love them. <laughs> but now and again, maybe don't like them very yeah. much. But that's I'd like an example. <laughs> no, no. Always, oh, never, never, never. Always, you were always such a such an angel growing up. Except kind of 16 was bad. What were you like at 16, Gork? I was ghastly. I think everybody is. I Yeah, yeah. yeah. I was troubled, naughty, mm. uh, in with the wrong crowd. But probably a, quite a coming of age, age for me. Yeah. It's, it, I was just about to make some big decisions to say, right, get yourself to college, do something with your life. Mm. And so I feel like I've had quite an adult time from the age of 14 to 16, Mm. two years of of a lot of growing up, a lot of life experiences, and then coming out the other side. But all of those, like, you know, Rosie, if you were were tricky at 16, you, Lorraine, at 16, all of those things just shape you into no, that's true. Best human. And mm. I think sometimes you've got to do that. I mean, we clashed a lot at that age when you were that age. But I think you have to do that. You're sort of and testing. And now look at you with your, with your own podcast. I mean, my like mother and daughter. <laughs> finally talking room. to one another. Yeah, we're talking to each other, so it's quite good. But it's good because you've got a different perspective on things than I have. It, mm-hmm. just, it, just, really, it just really works out really well and yeah. it's really good and you Gok are looking fantastic I think you're looking in great shape you you're look ridiculously kind. young it's very annoying <laughs> <laughs> so so annoying I'm 47 oh, this year oh behave yourself you look like a child oh. I mean you do take care of yourself though don't you I mean and, 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 and yeah. people I think I think everybody should feel that they can use products and make themselves look better why not I have no problem with that no. whatsoever yeah, no I, I do I don't, can you hear my dog? Yes, yeah. I mean, I start, um, apologies. Um, <laughs> fine. Yeah, I do. I like to look after myself. I mean, I'm probably, I'm not as um, obsessive about it as I was when I was younger. You know, the full makeup every single day going out of the house. You know, the hair was always absolutely perfect. I mean, I'm sat here in gym kit talking to you right now after a run this morning. And so I'm, I'm less precious about it. I eat well. I know mm. food for me is massively important now. And it's a way of controlling my disease as well. Is that if I know I don't restrict myself, I eat what I want to eat, but I like to eat clean. I like to cook and know what's going into my food. And that's really important. But the big thing is the booze because I love a drink and I love a party I hear you. and I love going to a pub. That has been a, quite a game changer for me in the last 12 months, actually, is really reducing that down mm. and not saying no to it, but just, you know, especially in the first lockdown. 
God, that was tricky because yep. there was nothing else to do. I was drinking most nights, actually. I've, mm-hmm. never, I've never drank at home before. That's been quite a revelation for me is knowing your limits with everything. So limits with your own anxieties, but also around food and exercise and everything, really. That's been quite an eye-opener. No, it has because you are the kind of person that grabs life, you know, by the bum and just goes for it. I mean, you do. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Best statement I've ever heard. (laughs) Love that. I want to grab life by the bum. Absolutely. I am. And I'm, 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 I have a massive, massive obsessive personality. You know, I, I, I obsess about things. If I'm like, I can't go, right, OK, I'm just going to go for a couple of runs a week and do, a, you know, a couple of kilometres. I've got to do a marathon. Yeah. You know, and if I'm going to cook a meal, it's going to be a feast. And if I'm going to, and whatever. But I, I quite like that part of my personality. I think he's quite fun and he's good company. So that doesn't bother me too much. I have to rein him in every now and again mm. when he gets slightly carried away. But he's all right. And I'm not talking about myself as the third person. I am, completely. And that's very embarrassing, the third person. <laughs> no, but I know what you mean, because we've all got two sides, haven't we? We've all got the two yeah. sides of our personalities. Just that's, the two. Just the two. Just the two. <laughs> but that's all right. I think, I think that's absolutely, absolutely... Rosie, are you like your mum? Have you, have you grown to be <gasps> oh, like mum? I don't know. I don't think so. I think you're far too sensible. You're much more sensible than me. You're sensible, well, you're organised. Yeah, but you don't know... This is When you say sensible, I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> The thing is, you are way more like your mum than actually I think mum will admit. I can see the similarity. Your brain works. I think if you're, yeah, I think when people say that I'm like my mum, I'm like, "Mm, no, but obviously they're an outsider, so you see it more. Yeah, I don't see it. Maybe. No, that's true. I think you are. It's fascinating. And the what if then? I've got a what if for you, Rosie. Oh, God. (laughs) Okay. So, So, what if it's not journalism and writing then? What would it be? Um,. Honestly, I don't know. I feel like I'm, I still don't know what I want to be when I'm older. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I think everyone's got that thing when they're, oh. they want to grow up. That's all right. No idea. It'll come to you. I love food. Mm. Yeah. I love traveling. I, I, think, I think you should combine that food knowledge that you've got already and that passion for that food and maybe mix that with the writing. I'd read that article. Definitely. Maybe. Most definitely. <laughs> oh, I slipped into Auntie Gok there, didn't no. I? No. Something came. No, Auntie Gok is marvellous we love we love Antigoke I love the fact you're running you're DJing you're doing so many different things and nobody can put you into a little box and say stay in your little box <laughs> nor should they we should be allowed to do whatever we want oh, I, I agree I'm, I'm having honestly just the best time I mean I've hated lockdown 100 percent. I found it really really tricky and I have missed my world and my life and my friends and my family like so many other people but I've been very lucky because I didn't get sick and my family are safe and my friends are safe touch wood and so we're really really good but other than the lockdown moment I've had such a massive emotional journey over the last 12 months, you know, I've raised, I think I've raised 160 odd thousand this last 12 months. Fundraising is hugely important for me. Wow, I, I, that's I take brilliant. it really seriously. That's fantastic. And I wouldn't have been able to do that this year mm. if I'd been just flat out with work and stuff. So I've managed to raise a load of cash for people that do need it. And I'm really enjoying every single day being a bit different. You know, today I'm talking to you guys. You know, t- this afternoon I'm designing a collection, collection. Then after that, I am doing some stuff for music. Tomorrow I'm cooking on a TV show. And so I just love the idea that every door I open feels like a different book. Mm. And we end each episode by getting guests to tell us their biggest fail, regret and win. Um, So what are yours? My biggest fail was not 
finding my honesty earlier. My biggest fail. Mm. I should have done that. I should have done it because I knew it. I knew when I was lying to myself when I was a kid. I knew what I was doing. I would, and I refused to believe that I wasn't clever enough for that. Yeah, so that's my fail is my not finding my honesty in time. And what was, what was the next one? Uh, regret. I once wore an entire outfit where everything was beige. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine I'm that. Not, I'm when not did that happen? I was working at Habitat on the furniture department in Richmond <laughs> years ago, and I had a beige jumper on, a beige body warmer, a pair of beige trousers, and beige shoes. I kid you not, I look like an Austin Metro. <laughs> that is no word of a lie. So that's probably my biggest regret is where, in fact, I think I might have got sent home from work. That really? Day, putting cust- it, it was awful. Oh. You need to see that wall behind you. I look like that. <laughs> so, that's, so that's probably my biggest regret. What's the next one? uh, Your win. Ooh! There's been a few, I think. My biggest success are my relationships with all the people in my life, my family and my friends and the people I work with. And I do honestly feel that way. I am the luckiest man. I'm surrounded by the best people on this planet. And so that's definitely my biggest success is my relationships. Oh, that's lovely. But do you know what? You get what you put out. I always think. Aww. So if you're, you know, if you're putting out all of noodles, these fantastic dumplings, lots of noodles, and dumplings. <laughs> noodles and dumplings and positivity, <laughs> so you're getting it right back at you. It's just been such a joy to talk to you, Gok. Thank you Aww, so so much. Thank you for having me. I've oh, loved watching you. you. I've loved watching you over the years. Just watching you fly and continue to do amazing things. And thank you for everything that you do and for brightening up the world. You're wonderful. Stop it now. <laughs> Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much. Love I'll you see guys. you real soon, I hope.